Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 50, recorded on July 4th, 2016. My name is Julie Bayfan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hello, and happy 4th of July. Not only happy 4th of July, but 50 episodes. I feel like I feel like that's our 50th anniversary, Mom. Whee! I know, pretty impressive. I'm pretty excited. So, and uh, it's it's a lovely Fourth of July, in which I have mostly spent the morning working. What have you been doing? Uh, it sounds like your day and my day are very similar. I know. We really get into that whole relaxation thing, don't we? Well, relaxation is doing something you want to do. It doesn't necessarily mean doing something defined, quote unquote, as relaxation. For example. I do not want to go out swimming with sharks. It wouldn't be <laughs> relaxing. Yet other people might define that as uh, uh, fun. Uh, that much fun. It's fun. I don't think anybody would say swimming with sharks is relaxing, but maybe somebody would. Anyway, so uh, I'm headed out onto the road tomorrow morning, which is part of the reason that I've been spending the day working because the day before I leave is always a big day. Uh, so why don't you tell us what you've got teed up for the future here? For the whole future. So uh, so tomorrow I'm headed to Tampa, going to HSN to do uh, some scan and cut demos. I've got three airings, which I'm excited about. And we've got a super secret, which I can't really talk about, but I'm going to sort of hint around surprise for the show, um, which I think is going to be super awesome. I think people are going to like it a lot. And um, one of the things that I'm most excited about is, so one of the issues with going to HSN has always been that the Wi-Fi signal in the studio is not very good. <laughs> and what wh why that matters is because when I'm trying to demonstrate how to use the scanning cut with like your iPad or whatever wirelessly, because the... Um, because the signal comes in and out, it's really difficult to demo it. And then, so we end up having to show screenshots and like, it's just, you don't get the cool factor of it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but what I'm really excited about is the last time we were there, we talked to, I think it was a producer. It may have been like, I don't totally understand all the titles, how they work there. But we talked to a guy there who said he knew that there was a problem. It's been an ongoing issue. So he hardwired one particular studio to actually get, a strong Wi-Fi signal. And so we tried it the last time we were there sort of on the fly and it worked, Ooh. which was super exciting. So I think this time, one of my goals when I'm putting together the presentation in the studio is to make sure that it incorporates some of that absolute coolness Wi-Fi. Because like the worst thing in the world when you're a demonstrator is when you're on camera and it's live and something doesn't work and it's not your fault. When it's your own fault, it's like, whatever, that's your problem. But when it's something like the Wi-Fi signal isn't strong, that really just stinks. It happened to you, actually. Yes. Well, no, what actually happened to me once is they, somebody, one of the crew members managed to pull out the power <laughs> and the scanning cut can do a lot of things, but it can't work without power. So that was a hysterical moment where I was desperately trying to plug everything in and make it go again. And you just kept talking and smiling and dancing. Yes. Well, when you're, when you're alive, there's nothing else you can do. So I'm excited for this Wi-Fi thing. I'm excited for the new thing that we're selling during the show. And I think it'll be a good trip. And then straight from Tampa, I'm actually going to San Francisco, 
where I will see you. Um, and we've got a little family trip planned. But if you're in the San Francisco area, by the way, I actually will be back in San Francisco in October and I am going to be teaching at a work of heart in San Jose. It's the middle of the week dates. I think I'm teaching on a Wednesday and a Thursday. We're trying to work out the classes and figure it out. But um, just keep that in mind. If you're in California, that'll be my only California because CHA is not going to Anaheim this year. So I won't be around California in January. So that's going to be it. Um, And so then after San Francisco, come back home. And then I'm teaching uh, in Whitman. Which I've never been to. Yes, it's Massachusetts. I think it's about an hour from here, uh, sort of on the way to the Cape. And I've got three classes there, Friday night, a Saturday, and a Sunday. And you are coming along as my assistant. Oftentimes when I teach, people do ask me where you are. (laughs) They, They think that maybe you come every time, but you don't. I think you've also had people recognize you because I'm standing there next to you. Yes, it's true. You're very recognizable. Apparently, me, not so much. Well, I think what happened was uh, at some point when you lost a ton of weight, people didn't recognize you anymore, but then they Mm -hmm. saw me standing there, and that was like the hint. The hint, the clue. That's Julie's mom. So, yeah, so you'll be with me, and what are you going to do as my assistant mom in Whitman? Just whatever you want. That is so not true, and you know it. (laughs) That's a complete lie. Actually, when you come along as my assistant, what do you usually do? Uh, Schmooze, criticize. Sometimes you read the paper. Oh, and now I can read my phone, too. Exactly. It's a full day. I might be exhausted (laughs) by the end of it. It is, but no, you go around the classroom, and you give people hints and tips and, you know... Advice on their lives, exactly. You do. You really shouldn't wear that, dear. It's just not becoming. Well, I think you've said that to me many a time. Um, So that'll be good, going to Whitman. And then where else am I traveling off to? I can't even remember my own schedule these days. Uh, Oh, yeah, I'm going to Nashville at the end of the month for the annual brother conference where I'll be teaching there and I'll be eating uh, biscuits and gravy for breakfast and I will clearly gain 10 pounds from doing that. Isn't Nashville where they have that hot chicken too? It is. Nashville is where they have hot chicken and also, I didn't realize this, but people call it Nash Vegas and apparently it's the uh, bride, not not bride, it's not bridal shower. No, no, no. Uh, Bachelorette party. Really? Apparently girls go to Nash Vegas for their bachelorette parties way more than Las Vegas or anywhere else. It's like the brides, not bridesmaid, I keep wanting to say bride something, bachelorette capital of America, which I didn't know. Huh. Well, I miss that. I know. So the thing that that always bums me out when I'm in Nashville is it's such long hours. I've now been there like three years in a row or something. I never seem to get out to actually see anything, which is a little bit sad. Um, because I'm sure there's an art museum and I'm sure there's all sorts of stuff to see, but I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can't, the other problem of course is that since I'm busy from like 7am to 6pm or 8pm, like, you know, there's no time, even if something, even if I could have the energy to sneak out at night, where would I go? That's so sad. (laughs) I feel like you feel so sad for me. Um, and then in between all that travel, I've got two deadlines coming up. I have some new art foamies that I have to get the designs out for. And I have some new stencils that I get to get the designs out for. So I'm a designing fool right now. But these are good things, right? Because it really yes. means businesses 
booming. It does. And it also, like, I, I think the thing is sometimes I feel um, like, oh, my God, how am I going to get all this stuff done? And I'm traveling. And the thing about traveling that's so hard to explain to people is that it's not just the time that you're away. It's also the time leading up to being away. And then the time after you come away, it's hard to crash back into your life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that all gets very complicated. So sometimes I feel really sort of overwhelmed and what am I doing? And I have those moments because I think just like everyone else does, especially when you're sort of making your career up as you go along, uh, you know, where I'm like, what am I doing? I'm an insane person. I'm never going to get it all done. But the magical thing is that somehow it happens and I do manage to get it all done. Well, don't you think there are a couple of things actually here? One is... Because you travel so much, you have been forced to find ways to make art that doesn't require you being in a studio. So that's actually led you in a couple of interesting directions. The small watercolors that you do, the uh, sewing that you do. You used to do jewelry. You know, you had a little jewelry kit. I, I, I just think, so that's one thing. And the other is because you may not have long stretches of time at home. You go away and you come back and you look at something that you've started and you are refreshed and you go in a different direction. So it's actually not bad. It's just different. I think that's true. I mean, I do think that one of the things that I've always said to people about having artist block is you need to stop working on what you're working on. Like if you are, you know, scrapbooking or painting or art journaling or whatever, and it's not working for you, one of the reasons I feel like I do so many different kinds of, uh, you know, art forms is because it's a palette cleanser. You know, this isn't working for me. I'm going to go make some jewelry. This isn't working for me. I'm going to go do some sewing so that you're still being creative, but somehow those things unstick you. And then of course things blend and meld over into other things, you know, Right. They bleed. Well, and there you and then you end up with mixed media where you use some scraps from this and that and you uh, layer things. I will Yeah, well like yeah. right now, so this morning one of the things I was doing is I was working on a tutorial for the blog and I had some scrapbook embellishments that I found at Michael's and I was using uh, I was using some of my jewelry techniques to turn them into earrings, but then I was also using some paint and ink techniques to transform the little embellishments and you know, it's like it all sort of Everything informs it's something else. What are some of the things that you've done in this time that you've been home? Because you've actually been home for, what, 10 days or something? Yeah, this has actually been an awesome period of time because I've been home a lot. I've actually had a social life. I've seen some friends. I've been to a lot of museums. Um, and let's see, what are some of the things that, so I will say this, which is you and I had a long conversation about my blog the other day. And one of the things that was really tough is when I was going to Australia, I had to get almost a month's worth of posts ready ahead of time. And then while I was in Australia, I kind of had to prep out some stuff because I didn't totally get a month's worth. So I had to do stuff while I was there. And then when I got back from Australia, I still had to keep going with the blog, you know, Monday through Friday at least. And I think you were saying that you could sort of feel the fatigue in the posts, Right. Um, but that lately you had noticed that my chipper enthusiasm was back on board. And I think some of that is just being home 
and having the time because I think that a lot of the, listen, a lot of the stuff that I do is ugly and it's full of mistakes and it's experiments. And like, I made a, I spent like a, two hours this morning. Could One could say I wasted two hours this moment, but I would never say that. But I spent two hours this morning working on something that did not work <laughs> and is now in my trash can upstairs. And that's fine. And I learned from it and I know I can do a better job next time. And I know where the mistakes are that I made, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it was not a waste of time, obviously. But in terms terms of like having a deadline for a blog post and like, let's say I needed something immediately for tomorrow, I would have really been hurting. So then what happens is like, if you have, if you really want to get a blog post out, then you, you, I'm saying you as if it's a stranger, I tend to do things that I know are going to work. So maybe they're familiar or easy. They're not really a risk or experimental. You know what I mean? This is actually not dissimilar to other kinds of learning. Uh, you don't learn as much from the things that work as the, from the things that don't work, and you have to make mistakes in order to grow. We don't, the, we don't have time for it as much as I think we should have. When you go to school, you know, you write an essay, the teacher grades it, you get it back, but you don't usually have enough time to really work on it again and develop it and then hand it in again and have this discussion back and forth. So as a result, you look at this grade and sometimes you don't even know, I got an A or a C, why? Do you know what I mean? And you don't mm -hmm. have a chance to develop it. And I think the same thing happens if you're, if you're writing a blog and you have this terrible deadline of five days a week uh, and you're working on a project specifically for the blog... I wonder if sometimes one doesn't have enough time to rework it. And I think one of the things you do that, I, that people seem to like and that I like very much is you often will post something and talk about why it doesn't work and about the things you learned from it not working. Or you'll post something in progress and you'll say, I'm not sure yet which way I'm going, but here it is. And people like seeing that process. I think those things are important because most of the time on people's blogs, you see one fabulous kind of Martha Stewartish success after another, and you have the feeling that this person just already knows how to do it and never has to work at it. And I think that's a false picture. And then you get discouraged because the first time you bake a cake, it's lopsided. Well, and the second and the third and the eighth time. Well, maybe baking isn't for you, dear. <laughs> that's also possible. I like eating though. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's also, there's a whole bunch of stuff around it, which is also like, I think, uh, one, I sort of made a rule for myself that I definitely did not want to create projects that were just for the blog. I always wanted to make art and share it, but I never wanted to have like, I'm making this just for the blog. It's not something I would normally do, but I need a project for the blog kind of thing. Because I always want my blog to really be like my authentic voice. And I think the thing is when I get stressed and tired and feeling like um, like the blog is like a burden to me instead of a joyful place where I'm happy to share, like that's when I know I'm in a trouble zone and I need to play around and stop worrying about like showing off is the wrong word, but stop worrying about like making things that are so pretty or what, I don't know. That's the wrong word. I'm not expressing myself well, but it's something about... Um, caring what other people think, is that the way to put it? And it's really hard not to care what other people think. And I know I've said this before, but it's really hard when I put something out there and people make 
you know, not particularly nice comments. And sometimes silence is also, you know, hard to hear, even though you can't hear silence, but you know what I mean? You put something out and you're like, I wonder why nobody liked that. I thought it was great. You know, um, you once did a very good, uh, I forgot what it was. Was it, it was a talk about some of your ideas behind blogging. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really good. And one of the major points was it has to be you. It has to be authentically what you're interested in. And then the people will find you who are interested in that. And the people who are not, they're not your people. Right. And so they're not going to find you. And I think that that's still true. So I think, you know, it's really tempting to go towards, I look at everybody else's beautiful blogs where everything is white and spectacular and pretty and minimalistic. And I am just never going to be that. I am a messy and everywhere and stuff and you know what I mean? Kind of person. And I think, I think it's about like embracing who you are because I think more than anything, the people that I like to follow, the people who I enjoy reading, the people who I enjoy, you know, seeing their stuff, I feel like everything they do is so them, so real, so, you know what I mean? Well, so, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how you do your blog? Because I think it's been a while since you've done that, and I think people are interested. Sure, and you know, I actually got a really interesting comment from someone whose name I can't remember at the moment, but um, she wrote me a letter, and she said something like, um, I just want to let you know how much I appreciate your blog. I know that somehow you get paid for this, Um, but I just want you to know that you can never get paid as much as whatever, as the value of what you've given to me or something like that. And that was a really nice note because it, it was one of those things that made me feel like, you know, somebody out there is like really reading and really appreciating it and really liking it and all that kind of stuff. But then I also thought it was interesting, the whole thing about getting paid for it, because that's a question a lot of people have. And you don't. I don't. I mean, there is no, I don't take advertising, um, there is no direct payment. The only um, the only sponsor posts that I do are the Scan and Cut posts, which are always um, – and actually, by the way, so people know, not all the Scan and Cut posts I do are sponsored, only the ones that actually say that they're sponsored. Sometimes I just post about Scan and Cut because I like Scan and Cut and I'm using Scan and Cut. Um, but I do two a month that are sponsored posts for them, and um, – they're not actually paying for the advertising. They're paying me to do the projects. It's a whole other separate issue, but technically I don't think anybody cares. But anyway, um, so I don't get paid for it. In fact, I could stop doing a blog. Um, I'm not, and I'm not actually sure I'd see a big difference in my bottom line of my business. I think um, I enjoy doing the blog because I like sharing and I like the community and like Sue Clark comments every single day. Yay. And I, I know, yay, I pre- and she has for years and I appreciate that. And there are a couple other people who, you know, I notice comment quite often. I know every time I have a scan and cut post, Fauna is going to be there to comment. I know, you know, I just, I like recognizing some of the names. There's a Jill O who posts a lot there and I feel like there's a community and there's people and I kind of am guessing what they're going to think of what I'm posting. And I kind of write for them sometimes. And I like that sharing. So, um, okay. So let's talk about how I do the blog. So again, like I said, my philosophy about the blog is that I don't ever want it to be stuff that is fake. That's not really me. You know what I mean? Well, what does that mean? Give us an example of something that would be fake. 
So something that would be fake would be like, um, I don't know, a project that wouldn't I that I think is ugly or I would never do or is like clearly selling some tool or item that I have no interest in or um, hey, you guys, come use my, you know, aroma sprays or something. Wow, I sort of wish you had aroma sprays. Don't you wish that I had aroma <laughs> I don't know what aroma sprays are, but... Sounds awful. They, yeah. they sound deliciously aroma-filled. Um, something that just... I don't know. If, I think, like, if I started talking about um, Pottery Barn Studio, you know, whatever, that it just wouldn't be me because I'm all about, like, messy and baskets and, you know, make-it-work kind of stuff. So I just never wanted to do that. And I also, I think... I'm human, so I compare myself to other people. So another thing that would be fake is if I started to make my posts look like other people or other people's posts or other people's styles of stuff. Do you know what I mean? The stuff that is very popular that you see all over the place. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just about like having your voice and embracing that. It's kind of like I feel this way about the brush lettering. And I'm sorry anybody out there who is a fabulous brush letterer. Uh, I think brush, brush lettering is beautiful. I love watching the videos. I think it's hypnotic. But I think every single person who does brush lettering, it starts to look exactly the same as somebody else. And so my question is, why would you want to change your writing so that it looks exactly like 100,000 other people's brush lettering? Like, it's very hard for me. If you show me five people's brush lettering, I don't think I can tell the difference in terms of who the five people are. So... I feel like voice gets lost a little bit in that sometimes, but it's very hyper popular. And I know people who are like super excited because their Instagram accounts, for instance, have gone from like 2000 followers to 200,000 followers in like less than a year because they do brush lettering. But that's just not my, not my thing, I guess. So that would be inauthentic for me. However, it may be very authentic for somebody else. Okay. Um, so that's one. So then the second thing is I try to fill it with as many punctuation and spelling mistakes so that you can call me in the morning and tell me that. Um, no, so that's often the highlight of my day. That's just courtesy is what I'm saying. No. So then, um, when, let's say I make a painting and I really like it. So conscious of the fact that I'll probably blog about it, I'll often take photos with my phone along the way of what's happening. And then I will take those photos and I will edit them and then I will post them. Um, as part of the post, along with having to take photos of the finished work, including details and stuff. And then there's stuff that I think about because I know it's going to be shared online. I need to take a photo of this to show the texture because you can't really see it, not in person. I need to take a photo of this that shows scale. So I'll put myself in it or a recognizable object in it so that you can tell how big or how small it is, you know, because again, you can't tell when it's online. I, you know, you want to put your hand into it so that people can see that it's made by a human being. I mean, just thinking about all those kinds of stuff. So then it's editing all of those photos, uploading them, and then writing about it. And for me, I think, um, I, while I think some people do consume blogs just by scrolling through the pretty pictures to look, I think that the text really is the glue and is the difference maker between, to me, what is a pretty blog and what is an interesting, useful blog. And I know that it's a lot more work to write the text and to actually try to verbalize uh, why I like this or why I made this or why this is important to me or why I think this or et cetera, et cetera. 
So, but I think that's the stuff that's the most useful. And those are the places that I see people commenting and getting excited about things. And in the end, I think I just have to remember what is the goal of my blog? You know, because it can be a lot of things. Is it to show off my stuff? Is it to create a community? Is it to, you know, educate people? Is it to, and in the end, I think what I've decided is that my blog is about education and empowerment uh, with a little bit of entertainment. And for me, what that means is that I try to make sure that if I take you to the museum with me, I'm not just showing you photos, I'm saying something about it or that the experience of going to a museum is an educational experience for you. If I'm showing you pictures of something I've made, I'm telling you something about it that will help you with your own work or that will help you understand why it looks this way or that. You know what I mean? I do. And I'll tell you something else. I love to go back later in the day and see the comments because it actually is part of the blog. It's part of reading your blog is seeing how people are thinking about various things that you've said or shown. And that's where the sense of being part of a community comes in, and I like that. Well, so, I mean, I like to think of the blog as a conversation so that it actually is a I say, you say, I say, you say sort of back and forth and not so just a one-sided thing. Because a lot of times I will actually pull ideas for stuff I want to talk about from from comments or emails that I get from people I'm – uh, I get I don't don't answer everything. Obviously, if you've ever written to me, I don't. But I do read virtually everything, and I think uh, those things do inform how I approach things later. Because I'll say, oh yeah, you know what? There were a lot of questions about that paint. Next time, I need to make sure I mention exactly what the paint is and how I'm using it. Oh yeah, there were some people who were confused about whatever, or who really liked whatever. Maybe I'll do some more of that. Okay. Let's uh, talk about this, uh, the steering committee of the Museum of Fine Arts uh, Museum Council, because I'd love to hear some of the ideas for programming that you would like to see. So this is, um, so let's, first let's back up and explain. So the Museum of Fine Arts is a museum here in Boston, and I've shared a number of posts from events I've been to on my blog there. So I, there's a level of membership called Museum Council, and anybody can join Museum Council. Um, you just pay a certain amount of money to be that level of membership, and then you get to go to certain kinds of events. And every museum has this kind of thing. So wherever your town is, you should look into this. Um, and so for instance, when I lived in New York, I would join the MoMA and for the first few years I lived in New York, I think I was like at a fellowship level or something. And then I jumped up to a patron level because the patron level let you attend curatorial lectures and other things like that, that were interesting and exciting to me. Um, so then, uh, when I came here to Boston, I joined, um, the MFA, as I said, at the, um, what the heck did I museum say? Council. Museum council. Level. I'm losing my mind, mother. Anyway, the museum council level. And then um, one of the things that happened is I went to an event, which was there's a gallery here in Sowa in the gallery area of Boston um, called the Abigail Ogilvie Gallery. And she's actually a museum council member, the owner of the gallery. And so she hosted an event at her gallery, that which is for uh, emerging and mid-career artists, with two artists 
who talked about their work. So I went with a friend of mine from college and he actually uh, knew someone there who had been a museum council member for like ever and ever and knew everybody. And so she introduced us to a bunch of different people. And one of the people that I met was the president of the steering committee of the museum council. If that's not too many layers, this is like my barber's friend's sister's cousin. But anyway, I think you sort of get what I'm saying. So uh, I started talking to her and I saw her at a couple more events. And then she asked to have coffee with me, which I thought was a social engagement. But in the end, it kind of turned out to be an interview um, cause we were talking about the museum council and the events and she asked me what kind of stuff I thought, you know, what I thought of the museum council and what I thought to see and being an opinionated lady, um, I gave her some suggestions for events that I would like to see in ways in which I thought the museum council could be stronger, et cetera, et cetera. And so she reached out to me and basically said, um, asked me if I would like to join the steering committee of the museum council, which is basically like a group of people who help decide, they help recruit members, they help do some development, i.e. fundraising, they help plan all the events for the museum council and actually for the museum in a lot of ways. So I'm really excited about that because I think it's going to be an interesting opportunity to really um, see some of the nuts and bolts of the museum, but also to plan events around art for people who are excited about art sounds amazing with the resources of the museum behind you, right? Do you want to mention a couple of the ideas that you're Yeah, so pursuing? I have no, I mean, first of all, I have no idea how easy or hard it's going to be to get any of these ideas through. So these may be complete pipe dreams, and I have no idea how, you know, ridiculous any of these ideas are. But I was really interested in seeing a series of curatorial uh, events, meaning talking to actual curator, museum curators who would give talks about some very specific museum things, such as frames. So there are museums which have taken all, at some point, like in the 70s, I think people did this, where they took, maybe even at the Whitney, they took all the art out of the original frames and put everything into the same standard frame so that the pieces would all look alike. But one of the things that has come up more recently in time is that the original frames are actually important to the work. And in fact, also in earlier times, like even in the, you know, 18, 1900s, people took uh, pictures out of simple wooden frames and put them in fancy like Rococo, like gold frames. And that's also wrong for those paintings. But now the frame, you know, is 300 years old, right? So it's actually valuable, but it's not original to the painting. And so, I mean, there's just a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff around framing, not to mention, you know, what happens um, when you take frames on and off, you know, and they have either stained the canvas or there's parts that have faded in light and have not, and there's restoration issues and like how much is, and the same thing actually, by the way, that has happened with frames has happened with pedestals for statues and for sculptures, mm -hmm. which is how they were originally displayed versus how they then in a museum were displayed, maybe on more of a blank platform. So they got rid of some of the original stuff, but the original stuff was actually the artist's intent to be a part. I mean, it's, it gets complicated and interesting. So so I thought that's an interesting topic to talk about. Um, another interesting topic I thought to talk about is also the museumification of contemporary art. So a lot of contemporary art is really made from garbage and throwaway things. So it's like, you know, getting a thousand packets of condensed soup and hanging them on a wall. Um, but the problem is that that condensed soup then becomes something rare and kitsch and cool because now that's like 1950s vintage. You can't find that anywhere. And it ch changes the art 
you know, because now it becomes precious instead of being like a throwaway thing that everybody would have had in their pantry. Um, and the same thing is true. For instance, there's an artist who does these exhibits with candy. I was just thinking of that. Right. First. Exactly. And part of his exhibit is always that he wants you to take some of the candy. And sometimes it's piles of candy. Sometimes it's a huge floor of candy. But it's this very specific candy. And part of his artwork is based on the fact that he was a man living with AIDS, a gay man living with AIDS. And he wanted you to sort of unknowingly or without realizing it be taking something. This is, And he was creating art in a time period when people just really made both gay people and people with AIDS real pariahs. And so the idea was that you were taking this candy from someone who, you know, uh, you might not otherwise do, you didn't realize or something, which is really, really interesting. But now the candy that he used, which was so easily found, is really, really rare. And because his art is getting consumed, literally, um, museums are going crazy having to find, you know, the replacement candy for his pieces when really I think it could have been any candy. So I think that's an interesting conversation, not just to describe incidents like that, but to talk about it from a real point of view, like, and I'd love to hear an artist talk about this too, which is how do you feel about should your work live on for 50 years? You know, do you want it to remain this particular one kind of candy or could it just be a pile of candy? You know, it doesn't matter. That's also a related issue is when people make art out of things that are going to biodegrade or so how do you sell it? I mean, yeah, you're a lot an artist, of contemporary. You don't have to be, a, you don't necessarily want to be a starving artist. And so well, sometimes you sell like a video of the process or you, you know, the you build a sand thing and then. The, the building of it and the waves washing it away, the video of that is the art. It, yeah. It's it's a very It's complicated. And I was going to say a lot of contemporary art nowadays, what you get when you buy an art installation is you get 40 pages of instructions. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what you've bought is 40 pages of instructions of how to install it, which I think is an interesting conceit, you know. Um, and it also, I wonder, I mean, a lot of times now with art, it's not about the like difficulty of constructing it. And often teams of people are constructing things. Like there was this whole thing about Ai Weiwei, you know, who he doesn't actually make any of his art these days. He has teams of people. And it's part of the reason that finding things out from him about practicalities, like how much does it weigh, how much does it, he doesn't know. And he has to find the person on his team, right. Who actually did that. And they probably jobbed it out to be fabricated by a steel worker. So then they have, you know what I mean? So it's, it gets very complicated because so much of art is conceptual now and not actually practical in terms of the artist made it with their hands. But that's an interesting conversation too. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff about that people will be interested in about buying art nowadays and thinking about that. And is art an investment or is it something that you like? And, you know, just what's the difference between a museum and a gallery? And like, I was even having a conversation with, I had a friend over last night who's an artist and we had dinner and we were talking and I said, you know, I um, remember hearing from this woman I was taking a classroom that MoMA had bought three of her pieces and she was very excited. And she said, they'll probably never go on display. And I thought, what an interesting idea that museums buy art with the thought that there's a 98% chance they'll never put it on display. They're just purchasing art to have it in their catalog. 
And then as an artist, like, obviously you want to get paid. And trust me, if MoMA wanted a piece of mine, I'd be like, I don't care if it never sees the light of day. Here you go. Um, but nonetheless, like, there is this thing about, so you create this work and it will never be seen. And that's kind of interesting too. So I think museums and art are a very complicated and interesting relationship. There are so many topics to talk about, you know, about how they can create a conversation or change people's minds about something or, you know, cause as soon as you hear, Oh, there's a huge exhibit of blah, blah, blah at X museum, you go, Oh, that must be worthy. Right. And the question, you know, I just think that's an interesting thing. Like who, why, you know, what is that? What's important about that? One of my all time favorite curatorial tours I ever went on at MoMA was one where the curator talked about this exhibit that the critics hated hated and truth be told when i walked in i was like Bleh. but then after hearing <laughs> the tour i was kind of fascinated because i was interested in what she had been trying to say about art i don't know if she was successful but it, i was a hundred i was all in after i heard that and so i think that's an interesting conversation too about, you know, some museums hate to put up those white placards that help you with information about the art. Other museums love to give you lots of information or booklets or whatever. And that's an interesting too, thing too, which is what is the conversation that a curator can have with an audience when they're not there? You know what I mean? And I just think I just think there's so many interesting topics here. I'm not allowed to use the word interesting. I just think there are so many fascinating, scintillating, uh, exciting, informative, informative <laughs> um, catalytic conversations <laughs> to be had. As long as they're not cataclysmic. So one of the places <laughs> that I encountered that difference between when you understand what the artist was intending and when you don't is when the first time we went to the Museum of Contemporary Art in Massachusetts, Mass Mocha, uh, because it's very, very contemporary. A lot of it is created for a specific site there, and they don't have, or, or at least they didn't when I was there, and I assume they still don't, they don't have things in storage because their idea is not to be a holding museum, it's to be a showing museums. So I would walk into a room and say, what is this? I don't get it. And they have wonderful curators or guides who give you tours and really help you understand what the artist was intending. And everything became so much more uh, uh, understandable and uh, fascinating and I thought you know more and more the it's being fascinated with the artist as much as with their idea it's the artist as a compelling person mm. as much as the art itself which is a whole other topic right artist is personality I'm, and I think that there have been many through time you know so that it's not just their hand now that I have to be aware of it's their mind yeah yeah and i think so one of the things that was interesting to me is the mfa recently got a frida kahlo painting and it was like a big deal and a big acquisition and they had it specially hung in a special place you could come and see the new frida kahlo 
And I'm going to be a total jerk and just say, I went and I was like, eh, you know? And I'm sure that as somebody who knows a lot more about art would tell me why is a really important Frida Kahlo and it's beautiful and blah, 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 blah. It didn't speak to me. I think they are also on a campaign to broaden their holdings. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have a Frida Kahlo. Right. I understand that. And I understand why it's important. And I understand all that kind of stuff. But I'm just saying, like, that's a work by a really important artist. And I'm sure it's an important work. But it didn't speak to me. And okay. I think that there are things like that that happen all the time in art, do you know what I mean? Where like something is important or great or whatever and it doesn't speak to you or something is minor and unimportant, but it does speak to you. And I think the opportunities that I hope museums give you is that, so the difference for me is like a gallery is one person's taste. That is the person who owns a gallery says, this is the art I like, right? A museum is a collection of many people's tastes and many people's opinions. And my and I think that like when you go to a museum, what you see is I like this, I don't like that. This speaks to me, this doesn't speak to me. Do you know what I mean? And that but that you do find something that sparks something in you because there's an there are enough voices, you know? Whereas when you go to a gallery, sometimes I walk into a gallery and I love everything. I want to take it all home. Or I walk into a gallery and I think, whoa, leaving now. Because that's one person's taste. Well, it's not dissimilar from food, right? You don't expect to like every kind of food, but... I like every kind of food. Sometimes you have to be forced... (laughs) We're moving right along. Sometimes you have to be forced to see something in a different way or a different preparation, a different flavor profile than you're used to, to, to stretch yourself a little and... To offer yourself more variety. Yeah. So but the other and, sorry, the point that I was actually going to make originally at some point that I got lost along the way, but yes, now I just remembered I, and I did have a point was that I love Frida Kahlo, the artist, the person, like and like the myth that she's become as much as anything with her crown of flowers and her, you know, unibrown or mustache and like all the things that have come out of people who love Frida Kahlo. Like there's something about her cult of personality that I adore and think is amazing and like is fantastic. But it, it's not just this Frida Kahlo painting. I've seen a several Frida Kahlo paintings and I've sort of never been blown away by them. And I think like that's a great example of like I really appreciate her. But I'm not sure that I appreciate her art. Hmm. Okay. Which is an odd divide. It's not so odd. But it's not unlike, I wouldn't say that like I look at Andy Warhol art and I find it aesthetically, do you know what I mean, exciting to me, though I intellectually understand why it's important, but he certainly has a cult of personality. And some would argue he's the most important artist, you know, of the uh, 20th century. I mean, Picasso and Matisse would argue back, but I think, you know, (laughs) many people would say, right, that he changed art. So I guess the Museum Council Steering Committee is going to give you a chance to try to have some of these talks specifically about the way museums do their business as much as about art. Yeah. I think so. I hope so. I think it'll be interesting. And I think I'll learn a little bit too about like how they, I mean, I know that the MFA is on a mission to get more people into the museum and I'm curious to sort of be a part of that. 
I think every cultural institution right now has this problem of trying to draw younger people in. They have a traditional cadre of supporters who are aging and they need to keep on replenishing their audience. And I think that they try in different ways. They have all kinds of interactive events. They have social events. They have bands and music. And uh, I, th I think it's, it's a conundrum that hasn't quite been solved. How do you get younger people to support the museums? Yeah. And also, how do you get a broader swath of the population, people who have traditionally maybe not felt that going to a museum which is filled with art by, you know, dead white people yeah. is necessarily their thing or by a very masculine uh, approach to who's an important artist. I just think there are, this is a time when every museum or every cultural institution is struggling with the idea of how do I make this relevant to people today. Well, one of the things I did in Australia is I went to an exhibit called The Art of the Brick, which was Legos as superheroes. Uh -huh. um, and I think I shared those photos on my blog and it was, you know, millions, not millions, but like it was tons and tons of figures of superheroes made out of all these hundreds of thousands of um, Legos. And the audience for that was young obviously a lot of kids came because they're excited but it was also young couples you know 20s and comic book uh dudes and like guys wearing you know t-shirts that were comic-y and stuff like that it was not what you would see I feel like a usual museum crowd and I think a lot of museums host that kind of event hoping that the rollover will be somebody will say oh I had a really good time at that museum we should go back or maybe while they're there they see some other stuff I mean I think this is why right you bring school groups to museums because it's the idea that when kids learn like what a museum is like and maybe get excited by it they'll go back and that's always my fear too is that like if you have a bad tour or a bad tour guide or a you know a bad teacher or whatever that's then you'll go to the museum and go oh that was boring I'm not going there again yes I took your brother and his friend to a ballet when they were in eighth grade and afterward they both said to me we're never doing that again <laughs> <laughs> but in fact your brother has been to ballet subsequently now as an adult so Maybe a germ of something remained. Well, there you go. Or he was dating a girl he liked who wanted to go to the ballet, one or the other. Entirely possible. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, so I'm excited to be a part of finding some answers to those questions. And I'm actually, I feel like this is something that never would have happened for me in New York and is part of the exciting things about moving to Boston. More permeable cultural institutions yeah smaller pond more possibilities yeah. you know um that's exciting to me and i think um i think i said to you the other day there's something i have found in living here just about you know being able to walk and breathe and not have people on top of you all the time there's something just about like the quality of just an, a boring day you know at the store there's an article in the New York Times uh, this last week about how people are walking in the streets in New York because the sidewalks are so crowded. Well, and I remember I, doing yeah. that with you. Yeah, I was going to say, I always walk in the street because the sidewalks are insane and people are standing still and looking up at buildings and whatever else, and the street's the only place to go. So, yep. 
Too many people, too little amount of space. I heart New York, but I think this has been a good move for me. Anyway, so I guess we should probably wrap up. We're sort of at that time. So anything else you'd like to say or add? No, just I expect you for dinner. What time are you coming? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, Mom and I will figure out what time I'm coming over for Fourth of July dinner. I hope that you guys had a good Fourth, because I think by the time you hear this, the Fourth will be over. Um, And I'm uh, hopeful that I'll actually be sending out a newsletter this month at some point, so watch for that in your inbox if you're subscribed to my newsletter. Otherwise, I'll see you on the blog, and thanks so much for listening to the Adventures of Nerding podcast. You can find me at ballsresigns.typepad.com and leave us your comments or questions because remember, it's a conversation at ballsresigns.com backslash arting. We'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag pound arting podcast, A-R-T-I-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, all one word. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast. <laughs>